Welcome to Broken Buttons, Episode 1, a show spotlighting underappreciated bands, artists, and releases. My name is Dennis Proctor, and each episode I'll cover a collection of buried treasures that I don't think get enough attention. In this episode, a criminally underrated power pop band from Chicago. <gasps> Whoa! It's like a DJ thingamabobber thing. And a Philadelphia soul singer who Elvis Costello calls the missing link between Jackie Wilson and Al Green. Welcome to Broken Buttons, Episode 1. If you're listening to this on Spotify Premium or Mixcloud, you'll hear the full songs that I feature in each episode. If you're hearing this on one of the other podcast platforms, I'm sorry, but you're only going to hear snippets of each song. In any case, I encourage you to seek out the music I talk about, learn more about it, and most importantly, support the bands, artists, and record labels directly by buying their music, merch, and going to see live music once again. The first band I want to spotlight is a power pop band out of Chicago that got their start in the mid-80s. The band is Green. That's Green. G-R-E-E-N. Led by Jeff Lesher, the only consistent member through countless lineup changes and about a dozen releases, he's the driving force, a master of melodic pop song craft and the voice of the band. And what a cool voice. Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune had this to say about Lesher in a 1989 article. Quote, Lesher is a non-parel singer, synthesizing the styles of pop music's rich past, Plants, Banshee Whale, Prince's Erotic Falsetto, and Smokey and the Miracles, Cherubic, O.O.'s, into one of the singular voices of the 80s, end quote. Green reliably work within the standard rock and roll framework with tunes about girls, love, late nights, and broken hearts. But Lesher skids past the formulaic boundaries. His voice and melodies soar, smashing through the shoddy production of their early releases. Before we get too much further, let's hear some more Green. From their first and self-titled record, Here's Green with She's Not a Little Girl. That was She's Not a Little Girl from Green's first full-length release from 1986. Green should have been bigger. They should be more well-known now. They should adorn the list of why didn't they break through in their time, like Big Star, The Replacements, or Teenage Fan Club. But in a lot of ways, it's understandable that they didn't. The mid-80s wasn't exactly fertile ground for bands that sound like this. If you're worried about money. Sure, Green had plenty of peers that we now define as pre-alternative stars, bands like Husker Du and The Replacements, but none of them sounded quite like Green. And you already realize the other things stacked against this band's resurrection as underrated cult sweethearts, right? So try searching for Green right now on Spotify or any other streaming service, and you'll see what I mean. Try searching with Google. If you search for green plus the word band, you'll bring up a short Wikipedia entry for the group and the results. 
but you'll also get hits for The Green, a reggae band from Hawaii, and dozens of other bands or musicians with green in their name, and plenty of deals for green armbands and exercise equipment. Obviously, green formed pre-internet, so that wasn't on their mind when they chose the name. In fact, the simplicity of the name probably made it easier to remember if you heard it on college radio and you were trying to find them in a record store. Not so much today. Even if you're well aware of the band, it's frustrating to try to track down their music now. Take, for instance, how they're cataloged on Spotify. As of this recording, they are listed under two separate entries on Spotify. Both is green, and neither of which come up in the first hundred or so results when you search for it exactly. Now, you have to know the name of a specific song or album and pair that with the word green in your search. And even then, their first album is listed alone as the only release for the band under one entry for Green, and another five or so releases are under a separate entry for Green, but mixed in with 42 other releases by Not Them. In fact, I'm pretty sure most of that other music in the other entry was made by bots. Spotify has stats to track how many average monthly listeners an artist has. They also display how many people follow an artist, just like you follow someone on Twitter, For example, Drake has over 50 million monthly listeners and followers. Indie rockers turned major labelers The Shins have 2.6 million monthly listeners and 1 million followers. Big Star, the most cited underrated should have been of all time, has 450,000 monthly listeners and 107,000 followers. Green has 93 monthly listeners. They have 54 followers. I'm one of them. Green's second record, Elaine McKinsey, might be even better than their first. Produced by Green and released by Pravada in 1988, it won rave reviews, but sold very little. This is from Ira Robbins' review in the October issue of Spin Magazine. It's the issue with DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince on the cover. Quote, Pairing the most worthwhile kinks influence since Big Star... With enough hoarse, soulful R&B soul for a small Faces LP on Paisley Park, if you get my drift, Elaine McKenzie is an album of great accomplishment and even greater promise. He continues, Lesher's voice is astonishing, a rough but melodic roar that seems to be straining for release, leaping easily and often into knee-jellying falsetto. He keeps a sexy whisper in reserve for appropriate mood shifts, but even on restrained songs reveals inescapable emotional turmoil. Attractive settings never totally obscure the lyrical anguish. The review wraps up with, quote, The greening of America starts here. Unfortunately, it didn't, and if it did begin to take root, it was promptly neglected and left to wither and brown. From Green's second album, Elaine McKenzie, this is Up All Night.
Up All Night by Green, the leadoff track from their excellent, barely-heard Elaine McKenzie album. It's the one with a painting by singer and brilliant tunesmith Jeff Lesher on the cover. Green also released a smattering of singles and EPs over the years, including one titled R.E.M. Right around the same time, the band R.E.M. released their album, Green, in 1988. It got a mention on MTV News, and there's even a picture of Peter Buck posing with the Green R.E.M. EP. You can find that and other photos and links for this episode on the BrokenButtons.com blog post for this segment. Remember those green contemporaries, Husker Du and the replacements? They grabbed major label deals. Green seemed ripe to do the same. After all, the first two albums were showered with critical praise. They had a near deal with IRS, record label for R.E.M., The Go-Go's, and Fine Young Cannibals, but it didn't happen. And while Jeff and the band were disappointed, they were gaining in popularity in Europe, specifically on the Belgian and Dutch charts. Green hit the road for the first of many European tours. Jeff Lesher characterizes this period as follows. Quote, the European tours had been a startling revelation. We were respected as artists, fed regularly, driven in roadworthy vehicles to our shows, and put up in nice hotels. This made one mean meal a day at McDonald's and sleeping in an old van at a truck stop seem a mite distasteful, end quote. Green's third album, White Soul, and the next EP, Bittersweet, also great. Put out by Dutch label Megadisc, White Soul sold in Europe but wasn't even released in the U.S. until years later. Matt Wilson said this of White Soul and is right up for perfect sound forever. On White Soul, Green dramatically expanded their sonic palette. Strings, keyboards, timpani, helped in no small part by producer Ian Burgess, Lesher in particular rises to the occasion, layering multiple tracks of screams and whispers and putting forth his best performances to date. End quote. Lesher and Green held out hope that the alternative wave of the early 90s would carry them away with other 80s alt acts like the Pixies, Sonic Youth, or Flaming Lips. And while they were enjoying their overseas appreciation, you could tell that the band had started to acknowledge that the chances of a U.S. breakthrough were beginning to fade. Green audience. I glaube even that zanger guitarist Jeff Ledger. Jeff, welcome in the studio. Oh, thanks. Are you uh, influenced by the Beatles? No, actually, we hadn't heard of them until we got to Holland, and that was the first time that we'd ever heard one of their records. But we um, we like them now that we've heard them. So. I guess so. Hey. Um, I hear you have trouble finding a record company. How is that possible? Um, well, they've heard us play. So that sort of um, ends every deal right there. But um, other than that, uh, I don't know. We, we seem to not really be as commercial as a lot of the music that's on the radio or don't sound commercial like the music on the radio right now. So. But I can think of a lot of uh, bands that don't sound commercial and still have a big underground status like the Pixies for example. Well basically we're losers and <laughs> I don't know what else to say. We, uh, we're on a, a pretty large um, underground label in the United States right now but we were hoping to get on a big major label so we've been holding off signing any contract until we um, can get some concrete offer from a, a large label. In this interview uh, that I read, you said, um, we'll be the Van Goghs of our time. Well, we're just about to cut our ears off, so I don't know if, I guess we will be, but 
Yeah, you're gonna cut your ears off, but first you're gonna do another song? Um, yes, if you'd still like us to, we will. Okay, great. What's it called? She's Heaven. Okay, go ahead. Thanks. That was She's Heaven from Green's third album, White Soul. Green continued to release solid material throughout the 90s and into the 2000s. There was 1992's The Pop Tarts, a mix of glam rock and jangle pop, followed by several more CD releases over the next 10 years. While they did not see a spike in their popularity stateside, they kept at it, releasing more and more solid material. They supposedly passed on a U.S. record contract with Rockville Records that eventually went to Chicago alt-country rockers Uncle Tupelo. Here's Jeff Lesher on the group's Midwestern popularity but failure to break through to the mainstream from an interview in Rock Sellout. Quote, We were probably the first group from Chicago, arguably, to really go out on a national limb at that point and tour and put out records and get some national press. Chicago was still a music backwater at the time. I like to think that we made the world safe for Smashing Pumpkins and Liz Fair by our forays into the world outside Chicago, bringing some attention and cash for the music scene here with the major labels. End quote. Green's last album, The Planets, was self-released in 2009. Again, I turn to Matt Weston's well-written Green bio from Perfect Sound Forever. Quote, with the planets, Green have not only outlasted their mid-80s peers, but more than any of them, they've remained truest to their vision. In a way, their insulation from the trappings of fame that have hamstrung and distracted to varying degrees Paul Westerberg, Bob Mould, and R.E.M. seems to have bolstered their faith in the power of their work. The greening of America continues. Here's I Wouldn't Wait Too Long from Green's final album, The Planets. That was I Wouldn't Wait Too Long from Green's 2009 album, The Planets, their latest and last release as of this recording. Critics heaped praise on Green and touted them as the next big thing. Coincidentally, the name of Jeff Lesher's earlier punk band. Green did all the right things, but maybe not for their right time. They wrote great songs, made great records, toured endlessly, and gave electric performances. For some reason, it didn't all come together. But you can still enjoy plenty of their work now. If you're a fan of hooky, energetic, smartly penned rock tunes, check out Green. Story's not over. 
Jeff Lesher, Green's lead singer, ace songwriter, and only constant for over three decades, is still active. Lesher recently self-released a solo album called All Is Grace. It's another strong batch of songs with all the Green Lesher albums. Buy it on Bandcamp today. Up next, a timeless soul singer who got a taste of the big time before vanishing completely in the mid-70s. Music history is packed with bands and artists that had the talent, the songs, and even fully realized recordings to make it big only to be passed over. Some miss their window, or worse, some get their big break but somehow self-destruct or fail to capitalize on it. It's the reason I decided to do this show. There is so much overlooked and underappreciated music out there to be found and enjoyed. The next artist doesn't quite hit any of those scenarios exactly, though. Howard Tate got his break and made it happen. Howard Tate hit big, and he hit fast. Tate said that he came home from work one day and a big limousine was sitting in front of his door. Quote, You gotta get in here right away. You gotta get a suit. You're playing with Marvin Gaye tomorrow night. Between 1966 and 1970, Howard Tate had six top 40 R&B singles. And then he disappeared. Plunging into obscurity almost as quickly as he soared within sight of the summit. Tate never completely crossed over. While he regularly appeared on the R&B charts, the highest he ever placed on the pop charts was number 63. Let's start our dive into Tate by hearing his highest charting single. One of three top 20 R&B hits in his catalog, this is Ain't Nobody Home by Howard Tate. You put me through some pain and misery, Ain't Nobody Home by Howard Tate. Quote, with a groove laid down by keyboardist Richard T., guitarist Cornell Dupree, bassist Chuck Rainey, and drummer Herb Lovell, the production of Ain't Nobody Home by Jerry Ragavoy both borrowed from and influenced the music coming from Memphis and Muscle Shoals, and it set the precedent for Atlantic's first recordings with Aretha Franklin. While the music was great, however, it was Tate's vocals that made the record. Sounding like a less overwrought Percy Sludge, Tate's simultaneously northern and southern phrasing was impeccable, and economical use of his falsetto made it all the more effective. End quote. Tate had the voice, which many compared to Sam Cooke and Marvin Gaye. He also had a distinctive gospel blues delivery that sticks with you for days. But the tunes came from somewhere else. Before his quick ascent, Tate was singing in a group with Garnett Mims. Mims was the original singer of the Janis Joplin hit, Cry Baby. He also introduced Howard to record producer Jerry Ragavoy, who co-wrote Cry Baby. Ragavoy is known for writing Time Is On My Side for the Rolling Stones and another Joplin hit, Peace Of My Heart. Clearly, Janis liked the songwriting of Jerry Ragavoy. In fact, she also performed this Ragavoy composition that you've probably come across at one time or another. 
as well If you breathe the paper stone You know everybody's fighting on with each other That's Janis Joplin singing Get It While You Can from her massive second album Pearl in 1971. What you might not know is Get It While You Can was originally performed by Howard Tate five years earlier in 1966. Ragavoy was taken with Tate's voice and began recording him as a solo artist for Verve Records. Ragavoy's memorable, punchy Northern Soul production, paired with Tate's soulful blues phrasing, was a perfect match. Here's Howard Tate's version, the original version, of the Jerry Ragavoy penned Get It While You Can. But who knows, baby, we may not be here tomorrow, so if That was Howard Tate with Get It While You Can from the 1966 album of the same name. American rock critic Robert Criscow had this to say about Tate in his collaboration with Jerry Ragavoy. Quote, Tate is a blues-drenched Macon native who had the desire to head north and sounds it every time he gooses a lament with one of his trademark keens that signify the escape he never achieved. He brought out the best in soul pro, Jerry Ragavoy, who made Tate's records jump instead of arranging them into submission, and gave him lyrics with some wit to them besides. In return, Ragavoy brought out the best in Tate. End quote. Despite the magical team-up on early singles and a debut album, Tate recorded his second album without Ragavoy. instead working with Lloyd Price and Johnny Nash. Released in 1969, Howard Tate's reaction is more uptown soul than the grittier southern soul of its predecessor, but it's another recognition-worthy collection of performances. Bragavoy and Tate reunited for 1972's eponymous Howard Tate, this time an Atlantic release. Critics knock this album as being a notch below Ragavoy's best songwriting, but I think it's a worthy piece of Tate's catalog. Tate sounds great, as always, and there are a couple of really explosive, interesting covers. The band's Jemima Surrender, and this one, Bob Dylan's Girl from the North Country. Listen to Tate's voice. For she was That was Howard Tate covering Bob Dylan's Girl from the North Country from 1972. After recording a handful of additional songs, one single for Epic and a few for his own label, Tate retired from the music business. Frustrated with his lack of crossover, but downright bitter about how little he was paid for his successes, which again included three top 20 R&B hits, he quit. But not everyone was ready to forget. And while his name would fade from memories over the coming decades, Howard Tate's impact was undeniable. One of Tate's heroes, B.B. King, covered Ain't Nobody Home. So did Bonnie Raitt. Rye Cooter and Grand Funk covered Look at Granny Run Run. 
Jimi Hendrix covered Stop. Foghat covered Eight Days on the Road, and so did the one and only Queen of Soul. Not Everyone Forgot. Tate's old partner, record producer and chief songwriter Jerry Ragavoy, made many attempts to track down his old friend over the years. He contacted old business associates and got them in on the search. They all came up empty. Radio Radio Show at 1360 WNJC. Thanks for listening. We will return next Monday at 9. A New Jersey DJ named Phil Kasdan had developed somewhat of an obsession with Tate's whereabouts. Kasdan hosted a weekly radio show spinning soul, blues, and R&B, and had taken to asking his listeners for any information about the missing, by this time, cult soul legend. Even Verve, Tate's old record company, had given up trying to track down the long-retired crooner. The 1995 CD release of Tate's Verve sessions included liner notes that flat out said, Howard Tate is probably dead. Quote, it wasn't sufficient to leave a story like that open-ended, Mr. Kasdan said. I had to find out. Is the guy alive? Is he dead? There had to be something more than he just rode off into the sunset. Look at Granny run, run. In 2001, the mystery was solved. Ron Kennedy, singer of Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, recognized Tate at a grocery store and the old pals played catch-up after nearly 30 years. They exchanged numbers. Kennedy put the New Jersey DJ Kasdan in touch with Tate. Kasdan enthusiastically announced the good news to his listeners and the soul fanatics across the internet. Howard Tate was alive. He even put Tate in touch with a lawyer to help him recoup past royalties from his reissues. Apparently, Tate had quite a loyal following overseas. Eventually, a British journalist reached out to Tate's old partner-producer, Jerry Ragavoy, for a reaction. The only problem was, Ragavoy didn't have a reaction to give because he didn't know Tate had been found. Ragavoy was elated at the news. After reconnecting with his long-lost friend and confirming he was doing well, the next thing on his mind, could Howard Tate still sing? Before we answer that, let's answer this. Where had Tate been all these years after walking away from the music? After becoming resentful and disheartened by his missing paydays, Tate decided to go missing himself. He didn't intentionally go into hiding, he just bailed on the industry that he felt had wronged him. He worked as a securities dealer with Prudential for a while, and then darkness hit. He lost his 13-year-old daughter in a house fire. In 1981, after 20 years, his marriage fell apart. Soon after, Tate unraveled too. He tumbled into drug addiction and lost everything. He lived on the streets for years, struggling to get by and feed his habit. Finally, in the mid-90s, he started to climb out of the hole. He cleaned up and found God. He became a minister and dedicated his life to helping the poor and homeless. And that brings us up to the moment of his big reunion with Jerry Ragavoy and loyal fans' awareness that Howard Tate was alive and well after all these years. But now, more than diehard R&B soul enthusiasts were interested. But did he still have that voice? Could Howard Tate still sing? The music was the farthest thing from my mind. I never sang a note all the years I walked away from the music industry, which was probably 20, 30 years, I guess, uh, that long. Um, 
I never sang a song. I destroyed all the records. I destroyed all the pictures. And I wanted nothing to do with the music business. In 2001, longtime friend and producer Jerry Ragavoy arranged for Howard to perform again. There are few happy endings in pop music. The story of Philadelphia soul singer Howard Tate might be one of them. Ball's there for everybody. Our next guest is a great soul singer who's back in the business after a 30-year hiatus. His new CD is aptly named Rediscovered. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Howard Tate. In this world where people are fighting with each other. Yes. Jerry Ragavoy was stunned at how strong Tate sounded after decades of being out of the game. And he was really out of the game. Howard claims he never sang a note all those years. Not until Jerry approached him about recording a comeback album and got him into the studio. Tate also had no idea that Janice, Beebe, Jimmy, Rye, and any of the others had ever covered his songs or took an interest in his music. Howard and Jerry recorded a new album in 2003. It's called Rediscovered. And remember that Elvis Costello quote from the intro to this episode? Elvis called Tate the missing link between Jackie Wilson and Al Green. Tate asked Costello to write a song for his new album, and he agreed. So let's hear that now. From his comeback album, Rediscovered, more than three decades in the making, here is Howard Tate with Either Side of the Same Town, written by Elvis Costello. Now it's hard to act like strangers when we used to be so strong. Everything is changing and most of it is wrong. What do we know of anything. That was Either Side of the Same Town from Howard Tate's first album after 30 years away from the music business, but not his last. Tate had quite the victory lap. He made numerous TV, radio, and festival appearances in the 10 years after his reemergence. He recorded two more studio full lengths and a live album. And then, on December 2nd, 2011, Tate passed away of complications of multiple myeloma and leukemia. With a superb first act and a spectacular resurrection that led to a near doubling of his recorded output, there's plenty of Howard Tate music to check out and enjoy. Okay, that's it. That's the first episode. Thank you so much for listening. Broken Buttons is written and produced by me, Dennis Proctor. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at BrokenButtons0, that's the number zero, or at Dr. Proc. The Broken Buttons theme music is by DJ Chill Champ, outro and interstitial music by Tiny Speakers and Noah Proctor. 
You can check out additional notes, pictures, and links from the episode and my other musical obsessions at brokenbuttons.com. You can also contact me there if you have a suggested band, artist, release, or other topic for a future episode. You can also just let me know what you think of the show. If you leave me a voice memo, I might play it on a future episode. This is the first time I've ever done anything like this, and I'm learning on the fly. I promise I will get better at some point, probably. I'm clearly getting over a cold while recording this first episode, so at least that will improve. Finally, if you like what you heard, please consider telling your music fanatic friends about the show. I'll keep digging if you keep listening. On the next episode of Broken Buttons, we dig into one of the first all-female rock groups to achieve critical and commercial success, and we look at an executive at a multinational investment bank by day and acclaimed country singer-songwriter by night. me too. Someday you want me, and I'll be so far from you. Then you will be sorry, babe, you do me like you do.